Nothing irritates me more than managers who say, Michelle, it's just too hard. I can't find the diversity. Because what you're really saying is, Michelle, please give me permission to no longer have to deal with this problem. It's in the too hard bucket, and I just need you to let me off the hook. And if you're a hiring manager right now, I need you to really pay attention to what I'm about to say. This is your job. This is what it means to manage. Valuing difference is the job of every single people manager out there. And it starts with hiring, but that's not where it ends. That is just the beginning of the story. And so what we need managers to do is recognize that your success depends on your ability to hire, develop, reward, and promote people who do not think, act, and speak like you, who do not look like you. And the reason for that is your business needs that diversity to innovate, problem solve, create, and really tackle the challenges that are not just in STEM fields, but that are in every business to outcompete your competitors. You need difference because great minds don't all think alike. You cannot get to where you need to go with everybody looking, thinking, and acting and speaking in the same way. We tried that and it doesn't work. It doesn't work in organizations today and it won't work in organizations in the future. It is not the future of business. So if you want to lead, you need difference and you need to think about how do I value difference? So I just want to put that one to bed. And I think the second challenge that I want to tackle is managers, when I share the fact that it's the lived experience that matters most, 46% of people's experiences of inclusion are directly down to their manager's behavior. Can we all just take a minute to absorb what I'm saying? So 46% of your experiences of whether you feel included or not are attributed to your manager's behavior. So when I hear not my workplace, I've done everything I can, my workplace is a meritocracy, these hostile working environments might be true for some people, it's not true for my workplace, I need you to take a breath and accept the fact that because your workplace works for you, you are probably not aware of the ways in which it doesn't work for other people. So you need to believe people when they tell you their lived experience of your workplace and actually their lived experience of you. And understand that actually women might not feel safe to speak up. Women might not want to contribute their ideas. People from typically underrepresented groups, if they're devalued in your organization, they're not going to feel safe telling you that they feel devalued. So your job is to create an environment where people can call out inequality. Hi everyone, I'm your host Michelle King and I'm joined by Kelly Thompson and you are listening to The Fix. It's a podcast that shares the stories of remarkable people who are innovating and taking action to advance equity, equality and inclusion in the workplace and beyond. So Kelly, we have decided to host an entire podcast dedicated to the topic of hiring diverse talent. And a lot of people listening to this will be saying, why are we talking about this? And we're talking about it because I want to arm every listener with the understanding of how inequality works when it comes to hiring. So the next time you hear a hiring manager say, it's just too hard, there's just a lack of talented, diverse candidates, or our company simply can't compete with other organizations when it comes to hiring diverse talent, or I've done everything I can, you will recognize these statements for what they are. Leaders want to be let off the hook for having to hire minority candidates because ultimately it requires them to change the organization's culture 
for those leaders to change the way that they're leading, for those leaders to understand that half the problem we're trying to solve for is their lack of diversity when it comes to their own networks, and for those leaders to do the real work of creating environments that value difference. And so I'm really passionate about this topic. I want to take you through the logic and the arguments and what the research is telling us and to really ground this in a real-life example. I just wanted to share with you all. Recently, I think back in 2020 it was, Wells Fargo chief executives came out and said that hiring Black people was really challenging. So I think a specific statement was something like, while it might sound like an excuse, the unfortunate reality is there's a very limited pool of Black people to recruit from. And those statements are inherently racist. And I think they're racist because what we're saying is there's so few Black people in positions of power in our organization because they're just not as capable or they're just not as competent. And the CEO of Wells Fargo has failed to do is actually do the real work trying to understand why is it that talented Black people, A, don't want to work for my business, and B, those who do work in my organization are maybe struggling to advance within it or are leaving because the company devalues their difference. So for me, what we're not looking at is what are we doing with the diversity that we're bringing into our organizations? I cite the 2020 McKinsey study over and over again that finds workplaces are becoming more diverse, but less inclusive. And that is because companies are not harnessing the value of the diversity they bring into their organization. And this argument that you simply can't compete with other organizations that are doing really big things to hire top talent is nonsense. And we'll share why that is in a minute. So this entire episode is dedicated to unpacking this argument. But before Kelly and I dive into this discussion, what I wanted to do is really get us on a level playing field around our understanding of the most common barriers that exist because of the fact that organizations were never designed for difference. And this starts right from the hiring process. So for those of you who aren't familiar with the barriers, barriers is a term to really describe the most common lived experiences of inequality in organizations. So from the moment you sit down or apply for a job, your experience, your entire lived experience of that organization and the moments where inequality might show up in that lived experience, that's the barrier, right? So a good example of this are things like exclusive standards. So you might see that in a job interview where, you know, we select, develop or sponsor people who may be a very similar to what we associate with prototypical leaders. So white, middle-class, heterosexual, able-bodied men, or people who are very similar to us, right? So we tend to value people who are like us. And this creates sort of exclusive standards for anybody that differs from that dominant prototypical leader image, which is why women lack a lot of the development support, lack a lot of the sponsorship. We also see that positions tend to favor this prototype, right? So a dominant, assertive, aggressive, competitive, and exclusionary candidate is going to actually be seen as more competent because the more assertive you are, the more dominant you are, the more confident you come across, and therefore the more competent people believe you are to be, even if you actually aren't. So this is why a lot of mediocre people are in management positions because they get promoted on the basis of being able to demonstrate prototypical behaviors that actually have very little to do with competence. And we also see it, you know, with stereotypes. So as soon as somebody behaves in a way that kind of deviates from that prototype, we associate that with stereotypes. So a good example is if you're a woman and you're entering a job interview, 
simply dressing in a very feminine way, so wearing a very feminine dress, you're going to be seen as less competent because you're dressing in a stereotypically feminine way and therefore you're seen as more likable but less competent because we don't associate stereotypical depictions of femininity with competence, just as an example. And then you see it with exclusive criteria. And for me, this is just nonsense criteria. So if you have a job advert, I'd really ask you to look at it and look at the wording on your job ad. We know that typically people from underrepresented groups try to sort of overcompensate by filling 110% of the criteria that's required on job descriptions or job adverts. And if you see statements like drive, competitiveness, assertiveness, not only does this reflect sort of a typical gender bias or bias towards hiring people with prototypical, but you'll also see exclusive criteria around university degrees and exclusive criteria around language or exclusive criteria around years of experience. Now, I'm not saying reduce your criteria to hire people from diverse groups, right? So I want to get really clear that I'm not saying that. I believe there's actually a huge amount of very talented people from a range of diverse groups. And I think organizations need to reframe this to understand how is the messaging in our job advert not appealing to people from underrepresented groups? So I work with an organization where typically they'd only hire people from Harvard the Harvard University grads, right? And the challenge with that is you've got an entire leadership team that actually already know each other because they've all gone to the same university and that is a closed network, right? And typically all of those leaders were white and very few of them knew candidates outside of that. And this was actually an implicit exclusive criteria. It was never written in job adverts, but this was an organization that very rarely hired people from outside of those Ivy League universities. So you want to think about your exclusive criteria and you know, what's actually written in the job advert that's putting people off. And then secondly, what's implicit? What do we not talk about that actually is a requirement? And then the lack of flexibility. I mean, this is more important now arguably than ever before in the post-pandemic workplace. People need to know, is this a remote role? Is this a role with some flexibility? What are the opportunities for growth if it is a flexible role? And failure to really indicate that makes jobs less appealing. So this isn't about saying we need to make sure we dumb down criteria. It's more about saying, is your job appealing to people from a diverse range of backgrounds? I argue probably not if you're not stipulating, you know, what the requirement is around how people work. I think ambiguity is a big one. So that's a massive barrier that we see. It comes out with a lot of this hiring for fit practices. So we see this when companies want to hire people who fit their culture, right? So they'll use things like, this person has got great potential. I mean, what does that really mean? Or this person lacks judgment or lacks gravitas. Whenever you hear a hiring manager saying that, what you're really doing is hiring for culture fit. So, you know, the dominant groups in organizations tend to set the standards for behaviors. And those behaviors tend to create people's lived experience of their organization, which is really what culture is. And so when you're in an organization, the culture reflects the dominant group in that organization. So if white men make up the senior leadership positions and you're saying this person doesn't quite fit the culture in this organization, try and unpack what you're saying. Really think about it. Are we saying we only want to hire people who behave, speak, act, and look like people who make up our leadership team today? It's very likely that hiring for fit is a problem in organizations. And, you know, again, I've worked with leaders to say, Michelle, we don't want to be very explicit, right? We don't want to be too explicit and take this down a road where 
we've stipulated exactly the kind of criteria we want. And for me, that's a very lazy thing to do. So actually, you do need to specify what you're looking for. And you want to do that in two ways. So you're really wanting to look at when it comes to the person that we're trying to hire, have we looked at both what we need them to do in terms of what we call this know what in workplaces. So sort of learnt knowledge around how they undertake the role. Do they have qualifications? Do they have the necessary skills, years of experience, all of that, right? So what it is that they're going to be carrying out, do they have the skills to do that? And then importantly, how? So how is somebody carrying that out? And for me, this is where companies don't spend enough time. They're really looking at the values and the way in which individuals live up to those values and how people do that in a way that really is aligned to your organization's values. So forget culture fit. It needs to be about value fit, right? The whole point around this is being very clear about what your company values and why, and then recruiting against that. And the whole piece around a lack of representation in organizations is really about, for me, adopting an intersectional lens. So by that, I mean, rather than relying on specific demographic variables in terms of what you're trying to fill, because that goes down the quota and target path, I think what we really need is for leaders to start to think about what are the all aspects of identities that we would like represented on our leadership team? How is it from a hiring perspective that we're not serving the communities we operate in because we don't reflect those communities and the makeup of our leadership team? And leaders need to think about all different aspects of diversity that they want to bring into their organization and why they want to do that in terms of, you know, really harnessing the value of that diversity to innovate, to problem solve, to create. So for me, that can only really be done effectively if every hiring manager is aware of how inequality is showing up in the hiring process and importantly, understanding what is the lived experience of a Black trans woman in our organization? What is the lived experience of a mother working in this organization? Really starting to understand those experiences so you can start to manage them. And how is it in our hiring process that we're actually devaluing difference right from the get-go? So that's really an overview of the barriers that commonly exist in hiring processes and that create a playing field that's simply not level. And I think the really important point, if you're a white male listening to this, is to recognize that your experience is not the only experience of working life and your position is not neutral. So if workplaces have worked for you, if hiring processes have worked for you, if job adverts have spoken to you, that's great but that's your lived experience. That's not the same as everybody else. And the reason it's not the same, the reason we don't all have the same experience of working life is organizations were never designed for difference right from the start. And so we have to think about how do we value difference right at the beginning of the process. So today, Kelly and I are going to unpack all of this. And we're also going to look at, you know, what businesses can do to really try and value difference. So Kelly, I would love to hear from you in terms of your motivation for this episode and, you know, just what you hope our listeners can get out of it. I think, like you say, those things are often well intended because someone is at least, if we're going to be positive, they're at least engaging with the problem, which is that they have a lack of representation. But then so often that's where it stops. There's nothing I can do about it. I am but a victim of the wider market forces. And what more can I do if those people aren't there? And what we would say, I think, Michelle, and we've talked about this lots in lots of different contexts, is that's kind of not good enough. There is lots you can do, actually. And focusing, as you just said, on 
the numbers primarily, even though this sounds counterintuitive in a way, that's not the best way to fix the numbers. And we talked about this on our last sort of cathartic lessons for the year podcast, how the numbers are the output of the actions that you take that are more cultural. I saw something on Instagram the other day, and I can't remember the lady's name, but we can put it in the show notes. I think it was Danielle. And she said, diversity is the fruit, equity is the root. And I thought, that's exactly it, isn't it? If you think of it as a tree, you know, you get the diversity at the end, but only if you put in the hard work and continually tend to that culture and that equitable side of things in the first place. So I think we should talk a lot I think today about how you nurture that pipeline with the actions that you take within your own organization and you can't just look to the market to fix it for you. And there's lots of fantastic deep dive research out there on this for anyone who wants to test their understanding and assumptions around this. And I would absolutely recommend that for anyone who works in the STEM sector, is interested in the STEM sector, or feels that they're struggling from a recruitment perspective. So there's a study from 2012, which slightly terrifyingly is now 10 years ago feels like yesterday but anyway it was a randomized double blind study what they did was they did a fictitious student and they kind of randomly assigned them as a male or a female and they found that male and female faculty members they were talking to rated the male applicant as significantly more competent and hireable than the woman with identical application materials so there's that inbuilt bias was coming out there that was purely based on gender and we can talk about how that comes from a lifetime for people of feeling that science subjects and maths in particular are seen as more of a male thing. And then there's some HBR research that's reported around women's experience when they do get through that bias and actually get into the workplace in the STEM sector. And two thirds of the women that were interviewed in this study felt that they had to prove themselves again and again and again in their STEM jobs that the successes that they had were discounted, that their experiences were questioned, that somebody said, look, people just assume that you're not going to be able to cut it, and that Black women in particular were even more likely to report than other women having to deal with that kind of bias. Like three quarters of Black women felt that they just had to prove themselves over and over again. And a lot of it was things that you talk about in really great detail, Michelle, in your book around that tightrope, those expectations of women and femininity in the workplace and that they appear in the research to show up pretty starkly in STEM jobs, that you have to walk this tightrope between being seen as too feminine to be competent versus being seen as too masculine to be likable. And so the women who get through that bias and get through the door in the first place are then walking that sort of tightrope and facing that additional pressure to prove themselves over and over again and then feeding into that is kind of assumptions around you and your work after you've had children the maternal wall these biases that apply to women over men you're now not going to be as committed to your job or your job will now be a hobby and a lot of women in this research reported that they felt that they were competing with the men in their workplaces who perhaps in heterosexual relationships had a stay-at-home wife looking after the kids and that they were facing these assumptions that they would lose their drive after having children. So the kind of layers and layers and layers of these biases and barriers to use your language, Michelle, are just kind of creating more and more difficulties just doing your job day to day. So I'm going to try not rant here, Kelly, because we have limited time for this entire podcast and our listeners have things to do outside listening this to this podcast. But my whole challenge with the way this argument is framed is that we can't find women, right? So therefore, there must be something wrong with women. There's this lack of capable women. 
And they just have an inability, even if they do get hired into our organization, to ultimately make it in the organization and get to a leadership position. And based on all the research we've seen across most STEM sectors, organizations are pretty hostile when it comes to women's lived experience. So we call these hostile work environments in academia. And what we mean by that is they're environments where typically women are unsafe, right? Experiences of discrimination, bullying, sexual harassment are very, very common. And women are really on high alert, constantly waiting for the next moment where they're going to be discriminated against. And it makes it really unsafe for women to feel like they can be themselves and be valued for that. It's highly unlikely that a person operating in a hostile working environment is going to succeed. And there's a ton of different reasons for that. But largely, it comes down to really having this performance tax where you're under the microscope, you don't feel safe. And every day, your job is just to get by, right? Just do enough to not be discriminated against, to feel safe. And that's not an environment where people can be creative, can innovate, can contribute. It's an environment where somebody's just surviving. They're not thriving. And a great example of that is the mining industry. So I've worked in the energy and resource sector for many years, and I actually still work with a lot of clients in the energy and resource sector. And actually, I just finished my PhD. One of the organizations I studied was a large mining organization. And these are companies that come out with really big commitments to advancing women. Some of them say, you know, we're going to have 20% of women by 2022. And it's a really random number that makes zero sense. There's no context. Nobody knows why they landed on that number. Why is it 20% and not 100%? I mean, if that sounds absurd to you, well, it's just as absurd as saying, let's have 80% men and 20% women in leadership positions. So it's just as arbitrary to say that you want 80% women and 20% men in organizations, right? If that kind of feels uncomfortable to you, well, that's essentially what you're saying to women just in reverse. And so for me, a lot of these corporate commitments are really gaslighting. It's really hiding and making us believe that companies are doing everything they can to solve the problem when actually they're not, right? They're not solving for the hostile working environment. They're not solving for why it is that STEM organizations in typically STEM fields are really unattractive to women. And we just need to be honest, right? We need to be able to say that for organizations, when they make these commitments, they're inherently lazy and also quite honestly who gets to decide what percentage of women is acceptable in a leadership position and when we say women I mean how many listeners were picturing white women who gets to decide on the hierarchy I mean I've worked for organizations where they'll say to me Michelle you know we're done with the gender thing we've got enough women we really need to now focus on race I mean what you're really saying is hey we've hired enough women and now we need to focus on you know black women and for me there's this hierarchy when it comes to representation that is just so gross where we start with gender we then look at race and then we look at other areas of difference like people with disabilities or the lgbtqia community and that is not an organization that i want to be a part of so for me representation matters absolutely it is a scorecard it tells you whether or not your organization is successfully valuing difference right because if you can value difference you will be able to attract difference into your organization and importantly, keep it there. The problem is it does nothing really to solve for looking at representation the entire time, does nothing to solve for whether or not your company is valuing difference. And so for me, it's not the solution. It's really a litmus test as to where your organization's at. 
And again, mining is an excellent example of this. So you have those company commitments. And then what we found was very recently, there's been, if you've been following the news in Australia, there's been huge reports with companies like Rio Tinto coming out and publishing a culture paper. And I encourage anyone to read it that really digs into people's experiences of sexual harassment, sexual assault, bullying, racism. These are all hostile experiences on site that make people feel devalued. And one organization I work with didn't even have a toilet on site for women to use. And now you want to know why women don't want to work for your organization? I mean, come on. And so I think it takes a really particular type of person who's willing to show up every day and feel psychologically and physically unsafe. And my question to leaders is, what are you doing to create an environment that values different? And it's not just mining, right? Like we had a great episode with Justine Heinz. It was a podcast episode where she released an annual report of the status of women in technology. And, you know, she found things like 59% of women experience unwanted physical contact. 62% of women say their proposition for sex. 56% of women experience sexual slurs. And we have 32% of women who grope, 24% of women who send graphic photos. I mean, the list goes on and on and on. And again, we wonder why it is that women don't want to work in tech. So for me, we're really missing the entire lived experience and the challenges that that's creating for people coming into organization. And the starts right at university. So we see, for example, that women at sort of graduate level, tend to be graduating at similar levels to men. But at PhD level, that tends to drop out. And research examining why finds that actually the hostile conditions start at university. So what we see are things like women being questioned, well, why do you want to do a PhD in science? Because, you know, you're just going to go off and have babies. And men making unwelcoming comments to women right at university level and making women feel like they're not wanted, they're not valued, this is not the place for them. It's even as subtle as there'll be a poster advertising a degree in science and it'll have a picture of a white male. And so we just reinforce the messages that science, technology, engineering and math are environments that women and actually anybody who is different from the white male middle-class, heterosexual, able-bodied standard is simply not welcome. And that is the problem that we have to solve for. It is getting a lot better in terms of our understanding of those stereotypes and our desire and our systems approach in terms of education to kind of breaking those down. But then you hear things from UNICEF that girls have less instructional and discussion time and fewer questions in STEM subjects, and they receive less praise than boys in STEM subjects. And the other bit that always gets me, and this is something that I've always felt just from watching kids' programs with my children, and the research backs this up as well, is that those stereotypes are really reinforced in things like the way females are characterized on screen in films and television, that I think it's only 12% of characters that have identifiably got a STEM-related job on screen. 12% of them are women. And so it's those sorts of background, almost lazy stereotypes that are just perpetuated that girls and boys and people of any gender are kind of learning in the background and then taking with them into the workplace. And I think it's all too easy to say, we're a workplace, we're not a school, we're not a university, there's nothing we can do about those stereotypes. But one step that you can do is recognize that the people in your organization have brought them in with them, those biases that they've grown up with subconsciously and otherwise. And I also think that 
recognizing, like we were just saying, Michelle, that so much of the representation issue is borne out by these cultural issues. It is actually permission that you can do something to fix it, that you shouldn't be saying there's nothing we can do as a business. This is just about the pipeline that's available to us. Because I think if you're sitting in a STEM organization and you're listening to this, I hope you're either thinking, this isn't my culture. This does not describe the culture in our workplace. We have a great culture and it's a great culture for women. And therefore, if you don't have the representation that you want, perhaps you're not showing that culture. Perhaps you're not showing to the world and to potential recruits what it is that you offer your employee proposition, the day-to-day lived experience that you think should be more attractive to women than they might otherwise assume. So that's your task to get out there, to find your role models, to break down what it is that's great about your culture and to demonstrate it, to do outreach, to perhaps start with those educational institutions, to create that pipeline yourself of people who are going through, whether it's graduate studies or earlier, and you can show them what it is about your workplace that's so great. Conversely, if you're thinking, "Mm, you know what, maybe there are cultural issues, then this is your invitation to get under the bonnet, to root those out and to fix them and to create a culture that is more attractive to women. And I think if you're a recruiter or somebody with a recruitment role and you're perpetually frustrated that you can't get enough women in, but you haven't asked yourself that cultural question, I think that's where you should be focusing your time and attention because that is an area where you have control. And it's all too tempting because this is difficult work, isn't it? And this is said with no judgment of anybody. This is difficult work. And everyone's busy and everyone is pulled in a million different directions in their jobs. But to kind of wipe your hands of it and say, there is nothing more we can do, I would say is not good enough. And I think actually anyone who has said that, if you stopped and really reflected, I think you would probably think the same. So look, I think it's really important, right, that we address something. The advocate in me is absolutely screaming right now because nothing irritates me more the managers who say, Michelle, it's just too hard. I can't find the diversity. Because what you're really saying is, Michelle, please give me permission to no longer have to deal with this problem. It's in the too hard bucket. And I just need you to let me off the hook. And if you're a hiring manager right now, I need you to really pay attention to what I'm about to say. This is your job. This is what it means to manage. Valuing difference is the job of every single people manager out there. And it starts with hiring, but that's not where it ends, that it's just the beginning of the story. And so what we need managers to do is recognize that your success depends on your ability to hire, develop, reward, and promote people who do not think, act, and speak like you, who do not look like you. And the reason for that is your business needs that diversity to innovate, problem solve, create, and really tackle the challenges that are not just in STEM fields, but that are in every business. To outcompete your competitors, you need difference because great minds don't all think alike. You cannot get to where you need to go with everybody looking, thinking, and acting and speaking in the same way. We tried that and it doesn't work. It doesn't work in organizations today and it won't work in organizations in the future. It is not the future of business. So if you want to lead, You need difference and you need to think about how do I value difference? So I just want to put that one to bed. And I think the second challenge that I want to tackle is managers, when I share the fact that it's the lived experience that matters most, 46% of people's experiences of inclusion 
are directly down to their manager's behavior. Can we all just take a minute to absorb what I'm saying? So 46% of your experiences of whether you feel included or not are attributed to your manager's behavior. So when I hear not my workplace, I've done everything I can, my workplace is a meritocracy, these hostile working environments might be true for some people, it's not true for my workplace. I need you to take a breath and accept the fact that because your workplace works for you, you are probably not aware of the ways in which it doesn't work for other people. So you need to believe people when they tell you their lived experience of your workplace and actually their lived experience of you. And understand that actually women might not feel safe to speak up. Women might not want to contribute their ideas. People from typically underrepresented groups, if they're devalued in your organization, they're not going to feel safe telling you that they feel devalued. So your job is to create an environment where people can call out inequality. And to do that, you have to make it safe and you have to be really clear about what your intention is. And the fact that you recognize you need to harness the value of the diversity you bring into your organization. So for me, I think the starting point for creating environments that value difference are recognizing you need to create an attractive environment. So the argument that as a hiring manager, I can't compete against the Googles of the world or the Facebooks of the world is utter nonsense. As an organization, if your company came out and said, here are the five things we're doing as a company to value difference. Here's why you should work for us, because not only do we offer competitive packages when it comes to why you should join us and why we're an attractive employer, but here's what it's going to be like when you join us from your lived experience. Here are the things we do to make sure that we are advancing and we're committed to advancing people from typically underrepresented groups. Here are the ways in which we're investing. Here's the ways in which we're training existing leaders to understand how they can create environments where people feel like they can be themselves, be valued for that. Imagine if companies did that across all areas of difference. Your employee value proposition, is that clear? Is it clear why people should join you? And if it isn't, then that's a problem that you need to solve for. If your company cannot differentiate itself from the big companies, you've got a major problem because those organizations have already struggled with challenges related to sexual harassment, sexual assault. All the big companies out there have cases, have articles against them where people are speaking out about the experiences of inequality. So your company can differentiate itself by talking about the lived experience in a way that's really positive. There is yet an organization to do that in STEM. So go out there and be the first. Outcompete your competitors. Win. Win the strategy around hiring for diverse talent by differentiating your company from every single other organization who's simply saying, you know, we've got to pay more. No, you don't. You need to create an environment where difference can thrive, where people know they're going to have equal access to opportunities. They're going to have equal access to outcomes. They're going to have managers who are truly invested in creating a lived experience where they can feel valued. Those are organizations that are highly competitive when it comes to hiring diversity. And for me, if your organization did that, you would absolutely differentiate yourself from your competitors and create an environment that not only attracts diverse talent, but ultimately keeps it there. And most importantly, harnesses the value of that talent. There are so many careers where it's just there on a plate, the tools that you need on the face of it, if you can solve these cultural difficulties and issues that we've been talking about and problems and failings, that the jobs themselves are full of all of the things that should be attractive to women that we know, like how many STEM jobs are creative, interesting, make a difference, involve collaboration. And I'm generalizing, but 
we know from your research, from other people's research, that those are so many of the characteristics that innately appeal to a lot of women. So the jobs themselves are crying out for women and women are crying out for those kinds of jobs. So it's not like we have to change the jobs themselves. It's what sits around the core functions of those roles. And that's what we can influence as leaders, as employees in our businesses. And I think once you've kind of attacked that, and that's a continuing practice, isn't it? You are not going to be able to spend three weeks or even three months or possibly even three years fixing that culture and then wipe your hands of it and it's done because as we've talked about loads that is a continuing practice and every time leadership changes every time structurally or any other kind of big changes there's risk to that culture and it's a day-to-day thing that needs nurturing. So one action I want every hiring manager to take, so anybody who's hiring anybody, I want you to take this one action, which is to ask yourself, why would women, Black women, people with different physical or mental abilities, people with different gender orientations, sexual orientations, you can insert any area of difference, right, that you are struggling with as a company and say, why would women want to work for my organization? What is it about your organization that sets it apart from every other company out there in terms of the lived experience? And if you can't list more than five things around the lived experience, you've got a major problem and the answer can't be more money. But, you know, a lot of research says that, yes, people may join because a company has great benefits and pay and rewards, but that is not why they stay. Research finds that people stay because of their lived experience, right? They feel valued. They feel like they belong. They feel like they can contribute. They feel that they're included. And I've worked with a lot of companies that are absolutely obsessed with diverse representation, and they completely miss whether people's experience is equitable, whether people feel included, whether people feel like they belong. They miss the entire other half of this equation. And so for me, you know, what we see is there's a lot of research in terms of, you know, people's experiences when it comes to things like development, succession planning. Do people have equal access to high profile opportunities? Do people have equal access to opportunities to develop exposure opportunities? You know, any of those types of things that are going to help develop people within your organization, because that's the real challenge. You know, what are you doing with the talent once you bring them in the door? Getting people in is one thing. But valuing them, advancing them, promoting them into leadership positions is quite another. And interestingly, for people from typically underrepresented groups, that's way more important because research finds if you have a person within your company who you develop, reward, promote to get them into a leadership position, they're much more likely to be successful if it's an internal placement, right? If you're hiring from within a company where you've been with the company for a while, people know you. They know your capability and they see you getting into a leadership position and it's much more accepted. You're going to be supported in a way that simply hiring a woman from outside your company into a leadership position is likely to work. And we see women from outside organizations placed into leadership roles much less likely to receive the support and to receive the endorsement that they need to be successful. And, you know, there's a great statistic that really shows that, that says that around 70% of women in STEM feel that women are treated fairly when it comes to recruitment and hiring. So we see consistently, okay, 70% feel the hiring process is is somewhat fair. But, you know, when it comes to promotion opportunities and advancement opportunities, that figure really drops to around 50 to 60%. 
And so why is that? Well, we've got a statistic that really finds 29% of women in STEM jobs believe that people don't perceive them to be competent. And so, you know, the reason we're not advancing, the reason we're not promoting women at the same rate as men, the reason we're not developing women are gender stereotypes, gender biases, beliefs that women and femininity are somehow less valuable and less competent than men and masculinity. And our job is to really think about how is it that our organization devaluing difference? And for me, it always boils down to, you know, what is the standard of what good looks like in your organization? What are you hiring to? What are you succession planning to? What are you developing to? And for a lot of organizations, the standard of what good looks like is still that 1950s ideal. I mean, 97% of companies have a deeply ingrained prototype, right? Which means when you think of what good looks like, you're going to think of a white, middle-class, heterosexual, able-bodied male who's dominant, assertive, aggressive, competitive, and engages in exclusionary behaviors to get ahead, who can work excessive hours, who's free from dependent care responsibilities. That's the standard of what good looks like. And that is the standard we hire against. That is the standard we develop against. That is the standard we promote against. And so for me, to get away from that standard, we have to be very clear about what good looks like. And we have to be very willing to confront that as an organization. And that starts with understanding, you know, why is it someone wants to join us? And why is it that somebody wants to stay with us? Well, to answer that question, it's your values. It's what your company stands for. And you've got to think about how do you demonstrate those values? And what are you doing to value difference? Can you give the five examples that we asked for? Because that is going to be your competitive advantage when it comes to not only hiring talent, but more importantly, retaining that talent. And even if you kind of square that representation circle, or you think you have because you've got those people in the door, if they're then the square peg in the round hole and they can't succeed because of all of these barriers that haven't been addressed and they leave or they don't make it into senior roles, the problem perpetuates because you haven't got role models, you haven't created that equal representation through the organization. And people know that. So the next time you go to recruit, people look and say, you don't have any women on the board or you don't have any female leaders or they're very few. And you kind of perpetuate that cycle over and over again. I do quite a bit of recruitment of graduates, actually, within our organization. And honestly, Michelle, every single interview that I do, I get asked and grilled quite rightly about our culture. And it's not as a throwaway question of like, oh, is it a nice place to work? It's like, what do you think the culture of the organization is? And why do you like it? And how do you impact that culture? And what are the kind of initiatives that are culture related? And the next generation of graduates or the current generation of graduates, let's be honest, are really, really focused on this. And they want to know the specifics. They want to know what does culture mean to you? Why is it important to your organization? How do you nurture it? And quite rightly, they want to know that. I think we've all got to get, at the very least, literate about this, but we've all got to get really curious about what we can do to influence it and also just get a bit impatient about influencing it and making those positive changes. So look, Kelly, I've shared my number one action I want every hiring manager to take, but I just want to share a couple of other things, right? So for me, I talk about the four Ps when it comes to inequality, and this is based on decades of research. For me, I love this model because I think it's a model you can apply to any area of inequality. So where you're seeing inequality in your organizations, use this framework for trying to understand it. So for me, my four Ps are policies, so what's written down, 
processes. So what is your process, whether it's written down or not? Like what is the standard process when it comes to hiring? Practices. So what are the behaviors you're engaging in? And then personal beliefs about what good looks like. And I think for any hiring manager, for any organization trying to tackle this issue, you have to look at your hiring policies. You have to look at your hiring processes. You have to look at the behaviors managers are engaging in. And you've got to do all of that with the lens of trying to understand how does this reinforce our shared personal belief about what good looks like? So absolutely look at your policies, try and weed out bias through the policies, try and look at how processes filter out difference, try and re-engineer them. There's a ton of different strategies and solutions out there to do that. But remember my words around, we can't think a way out of inequality. Inequality is a practice. It's something that we do. And so we need to think about what are the behaviors we are engaging in as managers to create other people's lived experience of inequality when it comes to hiring. How are we devaluing difference? What are we doing to address some of those barriers I talked about at the beginning? And a lot of this is going to come down to thinking about and digging deep on trying to understand, you know, what do you value? What are some of your implicit beliefs about what good looks like? How's that driving some of the outcomes when it comes to hiring? Are you clear on the behaviors you're engaging in that are creating other people's experiences of inequality, particularly when it comes to things like your lack of exposure to difference? How are you going to hire candidates who might be Black into your organization if you yourself don't have any Black friends? You're never going to be exposed to difference. You're not going to understand difference and different lived experiences because on a day-to-day basis, you're simply not exposed to it. So my request of every manager is to own this and treat this not like a business problem, but like a personal problem that you need to solve for. How diverse are your networks? You know, if 70% of jobs come through in formal networks, white middle managers or male who's sitting there, my first question to you is, hey, how diverse is your network? Because we know that 70% of applicants, people who are hired, tend to come through informal networks, which means you're picking up the phone and calling a mate and saying, hey, do you know anybody who might be interested in this job? Well, what did your mate look like? Do they look like you? So my request of every manager is to diversify your networks, get to know people who don't look like you, whether virtually on LinkedIn or actually by going to networking events and trying to meet people who don't look like you, expose yourself to difference. And then finally, for organizations, get really clear about what good looks like when it comes to your values. And a quick way to do this, you know, if your company has a value like curiosity, then look at the different ways you can recruit for that. What are the questions you can ask candidates to see how they've demonstrated curiosity, why curiosity matters to them, hire for value fit, because that's the quickest way to find the best candidate for your business. It's not really what people do so much as how they do it. And businesses need to start hiring for values in their organization. So for me, that is absolutely four things people can do. And it really adopts a very integrated approach to looking at this problem and trying to address some of the systemic challenges that exist in organizations. Yeah, I love it. I think building on that last one, Michelle, if you are hiring and you are frustrated that you haven't got enough women coming to you, flip that and say, I need to take my story, my great story to those women. I need to be able to communicate those benefits. Don't just know what they are yourself. Once you've worked out your value proposition and how that reflects what you want out of that particular role and turn that into your interview questions and make sure you don't have a one woman shortlist and make sure you have women on the interview panel and all of those things around stripping out bias in the process and standardizing the questions and so on and so on. Take the show on the road. Invest time, effort and money in 
outreach to people who might otherwise be put off those careers and think broadly, think about, okay, well, if there are these women who have done brilliantly at school in STEM subjects and brilliantly at university, where have they gone? Have they then taken a detour into other careers? Have they taken maternity leave and not come back because it wasn't a workplace that they felt they could balance family life and so on and so forth? And can you take some of that burden and as an organisation help them back into the job that they can do brilliantly. There are loads of programmes, certainly in the sector that I work in, in law, that are designed to find the kind of missing women and recognise that those women haven't left the workplace through their own lack of capability or fault. They're oftentimes they've left through an inability within their workplace or their environments to progress, to balance their life, to kind of be who they are. And so you as an organisation have the opportunity to find those people and to get them back into where they belong. And by the way, that will hugely benefit your business. And also, I think even further down the pipeline, okay, if you think your pipeline is not sustainable enough from a gender perspective, start earlier. There are so many ways in which you can partner as a STEM organisation with schools, with universities with all sorts of outreach programmes, with organisations like Girls Who Could, with organisations that are experts in helping girls into STEM subjects that they might otherwise be put off, partner with them. Be the organisation that that girl who's fantastic at maths has seen all the way through her education and beyond. And then hopefully she'll come and apply to you if you're looking. It's a pincer movement, isn't it? You've got to do lots of different interventions at different points in the pipeline coupled with the main focus on your own organisational culture so that when you do get those people in the door, they are getting the experience that they deserve and that you have sold to them. So I just want to take a minute to thank everybody for tuning in today. I know this was a long episode, but hiring is important and we hear these arguments all the time. And I think as a leader, taking personal accountability for solving this problem recognizes that you actually do have a lot of control over people's lived experience of your organization and you can make people feel included you can make people feel valued and you can importantly value the diversity you bring into your organization but for me that starts with recognizing that ultimately you can't hire diversity into your organization if you're not clear on what people's lived experience is going to be once they join and In order to get clear, you have to, as a manager, recognize your experience isn't the only experience. So I just want to thank everybody who listened today. Feel free to share questions, share this episode, um, write in, you know, through our website, fixpodcast.org. And we'd love to hear from you. Love to hear your suggestions, what's worked, what hasn't, what are your experiences. And I just quick mention before we go, you can also sign up to our monthly newsletter on our website and contribute your story there or sign up to be a guest on the show. So thank you all again for tuning in and I'll catch you all again next week.